Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Much Grace Was With Them All, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 23, 2006. In his book, The Heart of Christianity, Professor Marcus Borg of Oregon State University describes how his university students who grew up outside the church have a uniformly negative stereotype of Christianity. Quote, when I asked them to write a short essay on their impression of Christianity, they consistently use five adjectives. Christians are literalistic, anti-intellectual, self-righteous, judgmental, and bigoted. End quote. I suspect that Borg's unscientific conclusions apply well beyond his university students to our broader culture. Why these stereotypes persist, the extent to which they are deserved, or whether they are even accurate are all interesting and complex questions. But at least we can say this much. The emergent community of those who had followed Jesus gained a different reputation. According to Acts 2.47, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Why the contrast between then and now? After a period of confusion, doubt, and disbelief following the gruesome execution of Jesus, and despite threats from the religious and government authorities, his followers became convinced that, quote, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 2.32 in chapter 4, verse 20. To the shock of most everyone, these unschooled and ordinary Jesus followers proclaimed their message with courage and boldness. In Jerusalem, converts joined the movement in mass, first 3,000 people, then increasing to 5,000, Acts 2.41 in chapter 4, verse 4. Luke gives us a snapshot of this vibrant Jesus community that helps to explain the appeal of their message, its consequent expansion, and their local reception. We read in Acts chapter 4, 32 to 35, the following description. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was with them all. There were no needy persons among them, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. A few pages earlier, Luke describes a similar sort of primitive communism as some have described it. See chapter 2, 42 to 47. Clearly, the public reputation of these first Christians in Jerusalem differed markedly from what Borg describes today at Oregon State. What gives? 
Luke's depiction of the Jerusalem believers identifies a signature characteristic of their movement. In a single word, generosity. Their social generosity expressed itself in community. And their financial generosity expressed itself in compassion. Following the example of Jesus, the first Christians broke down social barriers and disregarded religious taboos that distinguished between the ritually clean and the unclean, the worthy and the unworthy, the respectable and the unrespectable. They were, we read, one in heart and mind. They subverted normal social hierarchies of wealth, ethnicity, religion, and gender in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. Later, Paul would write in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. About a century after Luke wrote, the early Christians had a well-known and well-deserved reputation for social generosity that built bridges of community rather than walls of separation. One of the earliest and most important theologians, Tertullian, who lived from about 155 to the year 220, wrote, quote, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other, end quote. In numerous studies, like Robert Putnam's book Bowling Alone from the year 2001, social scientists have documented how disconnected and isolated people feel today. We accumulate what Putnam calls a growing social capital deficit that leaves people in our culture longing for what he calls a more collectively caring community. Which communal caring, I think, is exactly the sort of social generosity that Luke describes in his historical description from Acts chapter 2. In addition, financial generosity expressed itself in compassion toward the needy. Indeed, a few pages later in his account, Luke describes famine relief efforts, Acts 11 verse 29. Some people dismiss Luke's description of divestment of wealth as a utopian dream, but that's not true. There are many believers, both back then long ago and even today, who live this dream. Gary Wills observes several examples in his book, What Jesus Meant, from the year 2006. Eastern monks, the Franciscans, the Shakers, Catholic workers, worker priests, base communities in Latin America, and Christian communities like Jonah House. The Catholic worker movement that he mentions, for example, was founded by Dorothy Day and Peter Marin in 1933. It espouses a strong belief in the God-given dignity of every human being. Today, over 185 Catholic worker communities remain committed to nonviolence, voluntary poverty, prayer, and hospitality for the homeless, the exiled, the hungry, and the forsaken. Catholic workers protest injustice, war, racism, 
and violence in all of its forms. The legacy of those first Jerusalem believers resonated three centuries later. The pagan emperor Julian the Apostate, who ruled from the year 361 to 363, and who vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights and privileges, acknowledged, quote, the godless Galileans feed not only their own poor, but ours also. Those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them." End quote. The so-called primitive communism of the early Christians subverted conventions of envy, avarice, and accumulation. Judging from the letters that Paul wrote to churches throughout the Mediterranean basin, their practice of divestment of wealth seems to have been limited to Jerusalem. It was clearly voluntary and not compulsory, as the tragic example of Ananias and Sapphira showed in Acts chapter 5, verse 4. Luke also says that the selling of property occurred, quote, from time to time, end quote, which is to say that it was sporadic and based upon a person's sense of God's call rather than compulsory or systematic. But none of these caveats diminishes the revolutionary impact of financial generosity expressed in compassion for the needy. Neither Jesus nor his followers advanced an economic, social, or political program, even though Christians on the left and the right do so today. Gary Wills even suggests that Christianity's alternate community of radical social and financial generosity was a sort of anti-politics. A generation or two after the events described by Luke, the theologian Justin Martyr, who lived from the year 100 to 165, summarized the appeal of the Christian community. Quote, those who once delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies." Luke concludes his general description of the believer's social and financial generosity with a specific example. We read in Acts chapter 6, excuse me, Acts chapter 4, 36 to 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Elsewhere, Luke describes Barnabas as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, Acts 11.24, and even as an apostle, Acts 14, verse 14. Barnabas exemplified all the goodness and generosity of those first believers. When the newly converted Paul tried to associate with dubious Christians in Jerusalem who didn't believe that he was really a disciple, Barnabas vouched for him. Acts 9.27 When news reached Jerusalem that even Gentiles were converting in Antioch, 
they sent Barnabas to them as their emissary. He encouraged them and brought Paul from Tarsus to them for an entire year. Acts 11, 22-26 Barnabas trekked some 1,400 miles with Paul to plant churches deep into Asia Minor, we read in Acts 13 and 14. It was the wisdom of Barnabas and Paul that prevailed at the first council in Jerusalem regarding the place of Jewish customs in the lives of Gentile converts, Acts 15. And it was Barnabas who had what Luke describes as a sharp disagreement with Paul, because Barnabas included his failed cousin Mark in further ministry after Paul adamantly refused to do so because Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Acts 13.13 13. In Acts 15, 36 to 39. Yet years later, Paul admitted that Barnabas was right in this regard. Colossians 4, verse 10. I get irritated when I read about Borg students at Oregon State, partly because I think they have a point. I wish that we Christians could somehow recapture the witness of those first believers who, because great grace was with them all, demonstrated overflowing generosity to their neighbors, and who consequently enjoyed the favor of all the people. Let that be what Tertullian called our distinctive mark. And now for further reflections. How do you respond to the stereotypes of Christians mentioned by Borg? Number two. What knowledge or experience do you have of Christian experiments with communal living and sharing? 3. What do you think of attempts to reproduce what we read about in Acts? Number 4. Do you know of any Barnabas-like believers today? What distinguishes them? And finally, for further reading, see Jacques Ellul's book entitled Money and Power, and also the fine book by Justo Gonzalez entitled Faith and Wealth, A History of Early Christian Ideas on the Origin, Significance, and Use of Money. My book review this week is of a book with the title, Attacking Poverty in the Developing World, Christian Practitioners and Academics in Collaboration, edited by Judith Dean, Julie Schaffner, and Stephen L. S. Smith. Waynesboro, Georgia, Authentic Media, 2005, 286 pages. To celebrate its 20th anniversary, the Association of Christian Economists, who were organized in 1982, convened a conference for Christian scholars and practitioners who were equally committed to Jesus' call to care for the poor, but who until this effort generally operated independently of one another. The conference took place in January of 2003. This volume collects the papers of the conference and exemplifies the spirit of collaboration that constituted one of its goals. Nearly two, 
Two dozen authors from around the globe contribute 18 chapters that are organized along four themes. Number one, collaboration among Christian practitioners and academicians. Two, design of poverty reduction efforts. Number three, evaluation and assessment of such projects. And number four, issues of policymaking, whether local, national, or global. These chapters explore a remarkable array of vastly different subjects and efforts related to poverty reduction by Christians. Medical care, microfinance, the impact of the rise of supermarkets in the third world, agriculture, education, literacy, international trade, debt relief, and global policies. Both theoreticians and hands-on providers have their say. They explain what they need from one another, why and how both stand to benefit from moving from isolation to cooperation. The questions they question received wisdom and provoke important questions. How does one define need and set priorities, for example? Or how does one design an effective program and how would you design and measure assessments to know if you had? What does genuine and healthy partnership look like between rich first world providers and poor third world recipients? What are the similarities and differences between urban and rural contexts? Private donors who want to do more than write a check, relief organizations and churches committed to specifically Christian approaches to global poverty Made more fashionable with Jeffrey Sachs's recent book, The End of Poverty, published in the year 2005, will benefit personally and institutionally from the collective wisdom and expertise gathered in this book. Another outcome of the original conference is a website that gives further help with connections, conferences, seminars, training sessions, and other academic resources. You can see this website at www.gordon.edu forward slash ACE forward slash DEV connect forward slash DEV connect welcome dot HTML. Given the vast needs that overwhelm limited resources, good stewardship demands the sort of hard thinking and creative collaboration that this book models. It also provides a fine example that other dis disciplines might follow in such diverse areas as law, politics, education, science, engineering, and business. Attacking Poverty in the Developing World, Christian Practitioners and Academics in Collaboration. For film this week, I review the film from the year 2005 entitled North Country. North Country, we learn, is, quote, inspired by a true story, end quote, and tells the story of Josie Ames, who's played by Charlize Theron, who works in the mines of the Masabi Iron Range in northern Minnesota and who initiated the first class action sexual harassment lawsuit in America. The first woman was hired in the mines in 1975, 
But this story begins in 1989 when men still outnumbered women 30 to 1. In the understatement of the film, a patronizing supervisor tells his new women employees, these mines are a shit pit. The images we see make it hard to believe any human being would work there, much less women. Filthy, deafening noise, dangerous, difficult, and toxic. The mines are a Dickensian world, but a socioeconomic world where people need their jobs. And for Josie, a single mother with two kids by two different fathers who still lives with her parents, the union job pays six times her, what her job washing hair in a salon pays. It also brings vulgar sexual harassment of every sort, which she stands up to despite objections from every quarter, not only from the Neanderthal men, but also from her isolated community, the union, her parents, and even her women colleagues. Despite the defense that sluts are nuts, despite accusations that she was either imagining things or brought them on herself, Joji, Josie challenges the system. Whereas in the film Monster, where Charlize Theron played the repulsive murderer and psychopath Eileen Wernos, in this film Theron is undoubtedly the best-looking bedraggled minor and single mother you'll likely see. To me, that's a bit of a distraction in an otherwise powerful film about bravery in the face of injustice. Most disturbing of all, the lawsuit with the real-life Lois Jensen was only settled in the year 1991. The plaintiffs won a modest settlement, but more importantly, they earned a sexual harassment policy at the mines. North Country is directed by Nikki Caro, who also made the film Whale Rider. And finally this week, for poetry, we offer the poem Icon, The Harrowing of Hell by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997. Icon, The Harrowing of Hell. Down through the tomb's inward arch, he has shouldered out into limbo to gather them, dazed from dreamless slumber. The merciful dead, the prophets, the innocents just his own age, and those outnumbered others waiting there unaware in an endless void he is ending now, stooping to tug at their hands to pull them from their sarcophagi, dazzled, almost unwilling, Didymus, neighbor in death, Golgotha dust still streaked on the dried sweat of his body no one had washed and anointed is here. For sequence is not known in limbo. The promise given from cross to cross at noon arches beyond sunset and dawn. All these he will swiftly lead to the paradise road they are safe. That done, there must take place that struggle no human presumes to picture. Living, dying, descending to rescue the just from shadow were lesser travails than this. To break through earth 
in stone of the faithless world back to the cold sepulchral, tear-stained, stifling shroud, to break from them back into breath in heartbeat, and walk the world again, closed into days and weeks again, wounds of his anguish open, in spirit streaming through every cell afresh, so that if mortal sight could bear to perceive it, it would be seen his mortal flesh was lit from within now, and aching for home. He must return first in divine patience, and no hunger again, and give to humble friends the joy of giving him food, fish and honeycomb. Icon, the Harrowing of Hell, by Denise Levertoff. Thank you for joining us for journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 23rd, 2006. And please join us every morning for a new, every Monday morning for a new essay, book review, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.